Lessons on Leaving Toxic Positivity and the Thought Terminating Cliché Trigger warning for my fellow ex-moonies. Again, as in one of my recent episodes, I'm going to be using a few Reverend Moon quotes to help illustrate some points. I will be using an AI voice to try to take the edge off, but just be prepared and feel free to fast forward if you feel as though these quotes will affect you in a potentially harmful way. A life of faith involves putting ourselves in the position of an offering. Only by dividing good from evil in ourselves can we become living offerings pleasing to God. We should constantly separate good from evil within ourselves, according to the standard of God's will. If we neglect to do this, a condition is set up for Satan to invade. I awoke to the harsh, tinny sound of a lifeguard's whistle. In between long blasts, a voice shouted, Brothers and sisters, time to get up! My eyes peeled open and I looked around in the thin dawn light. I was laying on the floor of a crowded cabin, tangled in a sleeping bag that was only half on a thin plastic sleeping mat. The noise of the whistle made it difficult to get my bearings and I mashed my pillow over my ears as I tried to remember how I'd gotten here. Mom had put me on a bus yesterday morning? It had driven all day and after dark had begun winding its way up a mountain, someone had helped me off the bus and brought me to the cabin by flashlight. The whistle outside of the cabin died down and I could finally think. I'm at Camp Sunrise. This is a Divine Principle workshop. Later that morning, after a long, punishing round of group exercises, I found myself following fellow campers to a lecture hall at the top of the hill. Inside were rows of tables. Brothers sat on the right, sisters on the left. At the front of the room was a large photo of true parents and a chalkboard. One of the young second-generation leaders, Chikashi, approached the board and wrote, Divine Principle, Chapter One, before turning to us. He scanned the room, arms behind his back, bouncing up and down on his toes. What is the purpose of life? Several hands shut up. A brother shouted, Happiness! A squint of his eyes said Chikashi didn't approve of speaking out of turn. And how do we find happiness? He spoke this a little more slowly, a hint of threat in his voice. Less hands this time. Someone was called on. By having our desires fulfilled. He said, exactly, but what about evil desires? Chikashi's eyes swept over us as though scanning for evil. No one spoke. Do any of you have evil desires? I shifted in my seat, wondering if wanting breakfast counted. How many of you would rather eat instead of getting spiritual food from lectures? Oops. He said, ah, so our original minds are in conflict with our bodies. This is why we must achieve mind-body unity to overcome sinful desires and live in harmony with God. True Father says the first way to achieve unity of mind and body is to knock down the body, strike the body, deny everything that the body desires. I rubbed my hand across my stomach, dragging my nails across my shirt, trying to tell my hunger to quiet down. He said, to what degree do we have to deny the body? Takashi looked at us, waiting for someone to answer. When no one did, he said, true father says we must deny it completely, even to the point of death. Takashi drew scientific-looking diagrams on the board, explaining each, the yin and yang for the dual characteristics of God, Man is subject, woman is object. I'd seen them before, but I wasn't sure how they fed me. The thought terminating cliché.
I am your brain. By the time I was eight years old, I had already sat through a number of Divine Principle lectures, although that summer at Camp Sunrise was the first that I remember with clarity. It was through those early and repetitive indoctrinations that my parents and leaders taught me that my doubts and questions about the Unification Church and its leader, Reverend Moon, were how evil spirit world and Satan invaded me. They taught us that we should read 20 to 30 pages of the Divine Principle every day because, according to the church, a spiritual channel opens when we read. In fact, leaders said this allowed God to educate both our own mind and the spiritual world, including our ancestors, who, by the way, might also attack us if we strayed. They said, quote, to open your original mind, don't stop reading when you have a question. Read the whole book in the shortest time, and the next time you read, you'll find the answer. Church leaders also advise members we should read the divine principle a minimum of 20 times in order to be protected from Satan, or 100 times if we were in a position of leadership. One leader even said, I want you to read divine principle so much that your book is nearly broken. That is your minimum condition. Other leaders and members said that we had to, quote, liberate our spiritual minds, and in order to do that, one had to stop thinking with your brain, your physical mind, which then enabled one to relax and liberate yourself from external problems. If all of this sounds alarming, there's a good reason. This training all rolls up into the thought-terminating cliché that if someone is experiencing doubt, it is, quote, evil spirit world invading. These thought-stopping techniques, also called a semantic stop sign, are a mind control technique wherein loaded language is used to quell the cognitive dissonance that one experiences when encountering contradictory information or thoughts. It allows a person to remove the stress of cognitive dissonance by basically avoiding all further consideration of a matter. Now, this concept was popularized by Robert J. Lifton in his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, where he also referred to this technique as the language of non-thought. It's explored in George Orwell's book 1984 in the use of newspeak, which sought to eliminate shades of meaning, ambiguity, and nuance available to people in old speak, which is standard English. According to Lifton, the way the thought-terminating cliches operate is that the most far-reaching and complex of human problems are compressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive-sounding phrases easily memorized and easily expressed. These become the start and finish of any ideological analysis. In the book Alcoholics Anonymous, Culture Cure, author Charles Booth says, Thought-stopping phrases include any use of language, especially repeated phrases, to ward off forbidden thoughts. One common example of this is the admonition given to Catholic school children to recite the Hail Mary or Rosary to ward off impure thoughts. He says that the use of repetitive chanting by the Hare Krishnas serves the same thought-stopping purposes. In the Unification Church, we might have shouted out Satan, or we might have just repeated Reverend Moon's name over and over again. In the book Recovering Agency, Lifting the Veil of Mormon Mind Control, the authors quote cult expert Dr. Steve Hassan as saying, In the Moonies, I was told thought-stopping would help me grow spiritually and allow me to remain centered and focus on God. I didn't know it was a mind control technique. I had been indoctrinated to believe that thinking negative thoughts would allow evil spirit world to invade me. Frequently, in many Bible-based cults, the devil or Satan is the source of the member's doubts. Reading scripture, speaking in tongues, and humming can be used to stop critical thinking. Dr. Steve Hassan has also said that emotionally driven loaded words, thought-stopping, and thought-terminating type cliches like fake news, 
build the wall, make America great again, etc. function similarly. As an aside, Mike Brinder's blog on word clearing in Scientology also offers an example of the loading of the language for thought stopping, and that is linked in the show notes. You think too much. Just be faithful. It's not just cults that use the thought terminating cliche. Perhaps some of the following are familiar. God never gives you more suffering than you can bear. Only God can judge. God has a plan. The Lord works in mysterious ways. On a completely secular and non-political note, everything happens for a reason, to each his own. We all have to agree to disagree. We all have to do things we don't like, or you're not being a team player. My favorite, it's all in your head. That's one I heard constantly growing up in the church. Whether I was voicing concerns about abuse or dealing with a debilitating illness, the message from my parents and the church leaders was the same. So let's talk about thought stopping with positive thoughts. Now, sometimes thought stopping techniques can actually be used for good. Some people use them to help ward off panic attacks caused by negative thoughts and rely on clapping their hands or snapping their fingers, snapping a rubber band on their wrist, and then replacing the negative thought with the more rational, positive one. Growing up, my mom taught me to say cancel, cancel every time I engaged in what she considered to be negative self-talk. It was a technique she learned from reading books by Jack Canfield, the founder of the Billion Dollar Chicken Soup for the Soul publishing empire and author of books like The Aladdin Factor. And while that sounds like a nice, empowering way to help a kid, thought stopping to eliminate negative emotions and only focus on the positive is the essence of toxic positivity. As a kid, I actually struggled with undiagnosed depression. Many days, I had a hard time getting out of bed to go to school and would curl up right under the covers when I got home. My mom couldn't understand it, especially because I was a straight-A student and participated in sports and extracurriculars at school. She tried everything that she knew how, within the scope of the church's approval, to help me. She'd take me on long drives so we could have the one-on-one -on -one time that I desperately craved. As the eldest of five kids, it was a rare commodity. She started doing evening tea talks to cheer me up and even bribed me with the occasional Dunkin' Donuts outing. But when she was short on time or money, sometimes her favorite go-to was a funny little frenetic soft shoe as she sang, You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. It almost never failed to get me to laugh. Even now, I can't help but smile as I think of the memory of her dancing and singing. But the one thing that I never learned to do was sit with my difficult emotions to understand them or process them. That's because in the church, they weren't allowed. Remember, negative emotions and thoughts were considered to be the realm of Satan. When you were negative, people said you were being invaded by Satan or evil spirit world. There were really only ever a few solutions that I saw presented when someone was struggling with emotions that were considered to be on the negative end of the spectrum. Shame them out of them, pressure them to read Moon's words, and if all of that failed, ship them off to a workshop, especially to the Chungpyung Training Center in Korea, where they would have to participate in Ansu sessions, which were basically long sessions of hitting your body and singing that the church believed would rid them of evil spirits that supposedly were the cause of all negative emotions, as well as mental and physical maladies. Somehow, I managed to never get sent to Chungpyung. 
I suspect that mostly had to do with the prohibitive cost of the travel and subsequent workshops. But I did experience years of people telling me that my struggles were all in my head, that my negative emotions were just me caning out, a phrase used to reference the biblical brother Cain who killed Abel in a rage, or my quote, forming a common base with Satan. In essence, the words of the Bing Crosby song that my mom used to sing me were the exact formula that the church required in order for me and my behavior to be met with approval. At their core, all of the shaming and indoctrination was to enforce an environment of toxic positivity so that one would never stop to question the beliefs or activities of the church. According to an article on Healthline.com, with toxic positivity, negative emotions are seen as inherently bad. Instead, positivity and happiness are compulsively pushed and authentic human emotional experiences are denied, minimized, or invalidated. Sound familiar? So what is toxic positivity? Dr. Jamie Long, a licensed clinical psychologist and co-owner of the Psychology Group of Fort Lauderdale, and Samara Quintero, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, they both define toxic positivity as the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, minimization, and invalidation of the authentic human emotional experience. They say that just like anything done in excess, when positivity is used to cover up or silence the human experience, it becomes toxic. They warn that by disallowing the existence of certain feelings, we fall into a state of denial and repressed emotions and deny the validity of a genuine human experience. So some of the examples that they use of toxic positivity and reframing into accepting statements are, don't think about it, stay positive. That's the toxic positivity. The affirming reframe is, describe what you're feeling, I'm listening. Toxic positivity would be, everything happens for a reason. The affirming reframe is, sometimes we draw the short straw in life. How can I support you in this hard time? Toxic, everything will work out in the end. Affirming, this is really hard. I'm thinking of you. Isn't it interesting how closely the toxic positivity resonates with the thought-terminating cliches that we explored before? According to Medical News Today, other examples of toxic positivity are telling a parent whose child has died to be happy that at least they can have children, or in the case of the Unification Church, when someone's child was killed in a labor trafficking mission, telling them that their child was a heavenly sacrifice. Another example from Medical News Today, urging someone to focus on the positive aspects of a devastating loss. I think my prior example probably rolls up pretty well there telling someone to get over their grief or suffering and focus on the good things in life, or labeling people who always appear positive and do not share their emotions as being stronger or more likable than others. We would have called them able type or such a heavenly example. So why is toxic positivity dangerous? Again, other than denying the natural human experience, according to medical news today, a positive outlook, again, is not harmful. However, a person who believes that they must only be positive may ignore serious problems or not address underlying mental health issues. Similarly, people who demand positivity from others may offer insufficient support or make loved ones feel stigmatized and judged. I think any cult survivor listening to this is just nodding their head going, uh-huh, yep. Medical News Today lists the risk of toxic positivity as including 
ignoring real harm. They say a 2020 narrative review of 29 studies of domestic violence found that a positive bias might cause people experiencing abuse to underestimate its severity and remain in abusive relationships. Optimism, hope, and forgiveness increase the risk of people staying with their abusers and being subject to escalating abuse. Another risk from them is demeaning a loss. Grief and sadness are normal in the face of loss. They say that a person who repeatedly hears messages to move on or be happy might feel as though others don't care about their loss. A parent who has lost a child, for example, might feel that their child was unimportant to others, compounding their grief. Another issue, isolation and stigma. People who feel pressure to smile in the face of adversity may be less likely to seek support. They may feel isolated or ashamed of their feelings, deterring them from seeking help. I mean, in the Unification Church, you are absolutely deterred from seeking help. They say, according to the American Psychiatric Association, stigma can deter a person from seeking mental health treatment. Another issue is communication issues. They say every relationship has challenges, but toxic positivity encourages people to ignore these challenges and focus on the positive. This approach can destroy communication and the ability to solve relationship problems. And finally, they say low self-esteem is a risk. Everyone experiences negative emotions sometimes, but toxic positivity encourages people to ignore their negative emotions, even though stifling them can make them feel more powerful. In fact, when a person is unable to feel positive, they may feel as though they are failing. So is it okay to be negative? Unlike what a cultic group will tell you, it is okay to have negative emotions and feelings. According to psychologist Mark Travers, PhD, there is a rule in psychology known as the negativity bias, which refers to the idea that humans are more attuned to negative cues in our environment, such as threats or challenges, than we are to positive cues, such as rewards and successes. From an evolutionary standpoint, he says this had a survival function and kept us alive in dangerous environments. Now, his article on psychology today actually argues for positivity and that the entire idea of toxic positivity is harmful, but I disagree. While I will grant that having a generally positive mindset can be helpful for our sense of well-being, I also want to posit that that negativity bias can also be helpful when assessing whether a person or a group might be harmful. Again, according to medical news today, humans feel a wide range of emotions, each of which is an important part of well-being. They say that anxiety, for example, may alert a person to a dangerous situation or a moral qualm, while anger is a normal response to injustice or mistreatment. Sadness may signal the intensity of a loss. Their stance is that acknowledging these emotions means ignoring the action they can inspire, which again, I think puts us into a dangerous position when we are assessing potentially abusive or manipulative people or groups. They also say that failing to talk about our negative emotions and thoughts doesn't make them go away. In fact, sometimes just vocalizing our negative emotions helps to reduce the power that they have over us and can help us feel less trapped by them. In fact, this same article on Medical News Today also states that there is research showing that talking about our emotions, including negative emotions, can even help the brain better process feelings. An older study found that labeling and talking about emotions reduced the strength of certain brain pathways associated with those emotions. This finding suggests that talking about feelings may make them feel less overwhelming.
According to psychotherapist and author of It's Not Always Depression, Hilary Jacobs Hendel says that teaching people that emotions are not under conscious control would help them tremendously. Basic biology and anatomy explain that we cannot stop our emotions from being triggered, she says, as they originate from the middle section of our brain that is not under conscious control. In an article on Healthline.com, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, a clinical psychologist in Pennsylvania who specializes in anxiety disorders and self-esteem, says avoidance or suppression of emotional discomfort leads to increased anxiety, depression, and overall worsening of mental health. Failure to effectively process emotions in a timely manner can lead to a myriad of psychological difficulties, including disruptive sleep, increased substance abuse, risk of an acute stress response, prolonged grief, or even PTSD. In that same article, Carolyn Carroll, a psychotherapist in Baltimore, Maryland, says that toxic positivity can give the impression that you are defective when you feel stress or distress, which can be internalized as a core belief that you are inadequate or weak. Again, how many cult survivors are just nodding their head going, yeah, I, I can completely relate to that. She cautions that judging yourself for feeling pain, sadness, jealousy, which are part of the human experience and are transient emotions, leads to what are referred to as secondary emotions, such as shame, that are much more intense and maladaptive. This is a really important point for understanding cultic abuse. According to Dan Shaw, a licensed social worker, in his talk with the International Cultic Studies Association, shame is both a cult recruitment and indoctrination tool. In an interview with licensed marriage and family therapist Whitney Hawkins Goodman, Dr. Carolyn Leaf discusses the relationship between toxic positivity and gaslighting, saying that trying to be positive, again, not always a bad thing. It can, however, become toxic when we shame ourselves for having normal human emotions. This kind of toxic positivity, they both say, can be a form of gaslighting, which is a manipulation tactic intentional or otherwise, used to make someone question their own reality, deny their thoughts, feelings, and experiences. So at the cultic extreme, toxic positivity is both a thought-stopping technique and a form of gaslighting. The abusive leader does it to their membership, members do it to each other, and also learn to inflict this abuse on themselves. At the end of the day, cultic control hinges on the belief in the positive power of the cult leader and members alike. It's a key part of the cult experience. This power could be anything from believing that their beliefs are true to believing that their leaders are heroes or are all-powerful, all-knowing. It could also be believing that their leadership is somehow the only path to spiritual salvation. In either event, the more followers that a cult leader has, the more power they enjoy. The more followers the leader manages to gain, the less likely they are to be challenged, and the less likely someone is to challenge them, the better the cult leader can maintain control over the members. If everybody is just gaslighting themselves and others with toxic positivity about their experience in the group or with the leader, they'll never be able to break free from that false reality. So with that in mind, it's vital for us to give ourselves and others permission to experience and validate our painful emotions. Sometimes we have to sit with our bad feelings without judging them. After all, emotions are information which can help us grow and learn. And in some cases, a little bit of that negative bias can go a long way towards helping protect ourselves and others. 
As always, I want to end with, if you have been in any high control group or religion, you can share your story with the hashtag I got out. Share it on your own platform, or if you need to be anonymous or would like support, there are resources at the igotout.org website. When you see a survivor share their story, let them know they've been heard. This is such a meaningful part of the movement. We all need to know we're not alone. If you know someone who has been harmed by a high demand group, share I Got Out posts you think that would help them. Together, we can bring awareness of how many of us have been harmed by high control organizations and end the shame or stigma we might feel about our experiences. You can tell your story, you can impact lives, and you can change the world.